Welcome, everyone, to this podcast number 15 in the series of Thrive London Good Thinking Podcasts. My name's Tracy Parr, and I'm the Director of Transformation for Good Thinking, London's digital mental well-being service. Today, our lead psychiatrist for Good Thinking, Dr. Richard Graham, is in discussion with Darren Goff, who's an expert in online communities. People are often using online communities to seek support and advice to manage their mental health. Here, Darren provides insights into the world of online communities and how important it is to look after those who run them, the online community managers, who may now be frontline workers. Thank you, Tracy, and thank you, Darren, for giving us your time today. We've been working on how to support communities online over the last few years, and many people will know about online communities, but they perhaps know a little bit less about what a community manager is and what community managers do. Darren, can you tell us something about what a community manager is and and what a community manager does? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for having me on the podcast, Richard. It's great to be here. So I think let's just take a step back to what the community itself is. So I would argue that communities in their current guise are probably only sort of 10 to 15 years old. But of course, community in an online sense dates back to the probably mid to late 70s. I think the well was probably one of the first forerunners of what we consider to be an online community. And most people have had experiences in, I guess, the late 90s with what you might call work intranets, which may send some shudders down some spines, thinking about those sort of clunky, horrible pieces of software that I think actually ended up being more of a deterrent (laughs) than actually collaborating to get people to do great work. But communities in sort of the last decade, especially, have really professionalised. And so with it has the role of community manager. So whereas before, I think community manager was thought of as, you know, someone that could be pulled in from another department. (laughs) A lot of cases of marketing, some poor marketing professional got lumbered with doing the community. And it was that, in quotation marks, do the community. But I think there's been a lot of great work done in our fields. And it's created this proper role now of community manager. And so that's not a social media manager. It's a very specific role, a very specific set of skills. And in terms of what community manager does, if people who don't know communities perhaps think about it as kind of a big warehouse, which is the platform itself. And within that warehouse, you have these spaces where people can talk about things that they're interested in or passionate about. The community manager, as I see it, is really someone who's almost the caretaker of that facility, someone who wants to make sure that people have a great experience, someone who can help people drive conversation. And of course, you know, being humans, we do you know, tend to disagree online, especially. It's the part of that role and that remit is to make sure that the place is safe, that we're building proper moderation policies and procedures to make sure that people feel fairly treated. But ultimately, the community manager's role really is to make sure that people take value from the community. So, you know, whether you're there in a professional sense, you, you need a problem solving or, you know, as a customer, you've brought a product and you want to speak about the product. Um, or even if you're just someone that's interested in a hobby, you know, maybe you want to set up a local yoga group in your area. And so it's meeting like minded people. And the community manager really is the, the sort of glue that brings all those people together and, and keeps them there as well. So a good community manager is a highly skilled and valuable professional that maintains and supports these communities that people really belong to and get so much value from. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's been a tendency in the past, especially with organisations, to think about the community or the community manager certainly as someone that's sort of a part-time role and, you know, anyone can do this. But it is a very specialist skill set. It's a very particular role. And I think the mistake that a lot of what any community really has is starting a community without proper investment in that role of community manager. So whether that's investment from a, you know, a financial sense in terms of it's someone's salary, but also just in terms of things like skill sets, you know, so people that just run hobbyist communities 
communities, sometimes with the best intentions. They start with a community of 10, 20 people, and it all seems to be going great. And one example here, Richard, is you and I went to an event and we heard from someone that had created a makeup community. And initially, the makeup community was great. You know, there's just people talking about their passion and it all seemed good. And then the community over time grew to, I think I'm right in saying about 35,000 people, which obviously for the person running it was fantastic. All these people are interested. You're obviously doing something that means something. But of course, the thing that they didn't see coming was the fact that divisions happen. So Click started to form, and that wasn't a pun, uh, a brand name around clique, but Click started to form, you know, people started to disagree. Let's get it's a human trait that we do tend to, you know, want to project our point of view. So this poor person that had started with a very friendly, you know, easy to manage community now found themselves trying to deal with some, you know, quite serious issues of trolling and bullying and also body shaming comes into that. You know, you and I, Richard, have done some great work with Sylvia Mack at Love Disfigure, and we're, you know, very aware of some of the issues that they face around, you know, body image, body shaming. So So it goes to show really, and that's just one specific example, but if you don't invest properly in the community skill set as a manager, problems are going to happen down the road. So I think the world is waking up now, and especially in the current climate, of course, the desire to go online is, well, it's being forced among all of us, especially in the short term. So the realization now these people are intrinsic, you know, I'd, I'd go as far as to argue that in an online sense, they are very much frontline workers. But you and I know a lot of people that are working in very pressurized environments, dealing with a huge influx of people that are worried, anxious. And, you know, how do you deal with that? So I think it's proven to be a very specialist role. And I hope that the one thing that people take away from this podcast is that if you are thinking about starting a community or certainly, you know, setting one up or you have a community, maybe you're reviewing it, is to just to look at that role of community manager and just see what support do they need? What kind of tools and skills can we give them to become as good as they can, which ultimately helps your community in general? Yeah. And actually knowing a community has a good community manager and a a team of moderators to support that work could actually make a huge difference to your experience. Given that you said that this is quite a new profession and that people may have been pulled out of marketing and perhaps sometimes comms as well into these roles, how did you get into community management? Where did you start? (laughs) by accident is the short version of that answer. So probably over 15 years ago now, my fledgling career started at a local newspaper. So always very sort of interested in the written words, which maybe lends itself very well to online in later years. And just by chance, really, I'd seen this character on TV that some of the listeners will recognize to be Martin Lewis of Money Saving Expert. And just because I had an interest in personal finance as well, I found myself talking to Martin and his web manager, Brendan, at the time. And they literally bolted a small piece of free software onto the main journalistic site. So for those people that don't know, Money Saving Expert is an independent consumer finance site where Martin and obviously the team now write about personal money issues. But they thought it would be great for people to connect and talk about some of their experiences. And I kind of stumbled onto this very tiny community of a handful of people. And I thought it was kind of quite interesting and reached out to them and said, you know, I think I could probably add a little bit of value here. You know, I'd be happy to do a little bit of writing to help out where I can. thought it was a very worthwhile thing. And that then led to a part-time job, which led to a full-time job, which led itself to a nine-year stay with Money Saving Expert. So in the first instance, really just an interest in the topic. And I think for most people, that's how they become aware of communities, by being interested or having a desire to learn something about an area. And then my career for Money Saving Expert really was almost like a hockey stick. In the first few years, it was very sort of steady, quiet growth, and we were managing it quite happily. And then as the profile of the community and and certainly Martin started to grow, obviously the traffic into the community became substantial. Um, So in the second half of that tenure, we were dealing with some pretty large numbers. So the community in my time there grew from a sort of really astounding start 
to, I think, about 1.8 million people by the time that I'd left. And with that, not just the, the sort of headline numbers, but the amount of other things that happened. So, for example, at one point, the community was trending for, I think, the top 20 money terms in the UK. So if you think about banking or credit cards, so people would go to Google and find our community or the site and come in there. And of course, that brought a huge amount of content creation. So, you know, at any one time, tens of thousands of people on our community creating content, you know, the, the amount of sort of sub boards we had, or you, you might consider them areas of interest grew from just that sort of central hub to I think 120, something like that of very nuanced parts of money. And of course, people that become members of your community that stay for a long time, they then build personas and personalities. And of course, then the moderation piece comes in. So, you know, people that start to become almost quasi specialists in their area, you know, welcoming people in, but then also there are tensions that arise people disagreeing on the ways things are done or, you know, how to manage finance. So there was a, a big moderation piece in there. And of course, people then used the community as a, almost like a trust pilot. So they would come on and talk about experiences they'd had with their local, could be anyone, shed supplier, you know, to take a random example. But of course, for that shed supplier, let's call them Joe Blog Sheds, you know, you couldn't actually pay, you couldn't have enough budget to get yourself top of Google, but it was for the wrong reasons. It was because people had come on and, you know, maybe had a bad experience or thought they had. And of course, because of the way Google was working, those terms were putting that search result quite high on the list. So you then get into issues of, you know, online slander and defamation and all that kind of stuff. So that caused us to be part of the 2013 Defamation Act rewrite in the UK, not, you know, me particularly personally, but certainly our legal team that we had at the time, but obviously taking advice from some of the things that were going on in our community. So you can sort of see really how this was started off as a kind of a almost a stumbling into community. And then the learning curve was quite steep over those years. So, you know, I'm sure we made a lot of mistakes. In fact, I know we did. As I say, community was sort of in its infancy then. So my journey really was one of discovery, but also incredibly worthwhile and some very heartwarming stories. And hopefully, you know, the thing I learned from that was that it did a lot of good as well. That was kind of my journey and up to the point where my tenure with MSC ended. You're also touching on, in addition to all those issues of scale, going from a handful of people to 1.8 million and all the challenges of that, that when it comes to money, and particularly areas like money worries or even debt, mental health comes into the picture too. I wonder if you could tell us how you started to understand that people would open up and start to disclose all sorts of mental health issues in a community that, at another level, was nothing to do with mental health. I think this is one of the things that's come through really strongly the last few years, but certainly my discovery of it was at my time at MSE. So you would often see people talking about their stresses with money in a very sort of high level, light touch way. And that was sort of par for the course. You know, everyone obviously will say they, you know, they need to earn more money or they're having troubles with debt. And it's a very sort of light approach to it. But I came in one morning on a Friday to a, a letter. This is about five to nine in the morning. And it was a handwritten letter, which believe it or not, even in those days was quite unique. Open the letter and start reading and the letter was actually from a, a single parent. And the reason for the letter was that the debts had got so bad. And from memory, I think it was over 200K, so pretty substantial debts. They got onto the point of wanting to put their child into care and commit suicide. So you can probably imagine, you know, as someone who's just literally taking off their backpack and drinking their first cup of coffee of the day, this made my blood run cold. I was worried about what the rest of the letter was going to say. But actually, the letter was very moving because the person said that they'd found our community and 
through meeting other people in the community, had been able to talk about some of their mental health stresses and anxieties, and also had received good information around the ways to deal with that. And over the course of, I think it was about 18 months to two years, something along those lines, had managed to pretty much pay off their debts with incredible support from the community. And obviously the takeaway from the story and the, the huge shining light really was that they were still here and they were still with their child and you know life was a lot better. But it kind of got me interested in, well, if this is the experience that someone's had in our community. And, and of course, I wasn't particularly aware of that person as an individual there must be a lot of people in communities that do have mental health or self-care or anxiety type of stresses that are using community as a way to deal with them and of course for a lot of people you know community for various reasons it could be one of disability it could be one of geography but online community is your social network as well you know there are a lot of people that are isolated in our communities who can't get out or you know aren't comfortable to go out or don't get a lot of support maybe don't have family close by or friends so a lot of the time, communities for them, it's a catharsis. It's a place where they can speak to like-minded people. And In my industry, we use the term people like me. So it's people that share similar worldly views, have similar stresses and strains. And just to take that analogy one stage further, I know you and I, Richard, discovered that there's a community called Piston Heads, which to those who don't know, it's a very sort of car-centric people that are into sort of track days and modding cars and, and you know, enthusiasts, a really enthusiast community. And they discovered that there was a sub-community that had been set up by long-distance lorry drivers. And what was fascinating was long-distance lorry drivers were obviously experiencing symptoms of isolation, of anxiety, you know, driving to new places, not knowing anyone. You know, your, your quality of life is really quite often sleeping in your truck, eating quite bad food, lack of exercise, lack of companionship. But they'd found that they were able to connect with other people that are in similar situations. And through the online community, you were able to share some of their stresses, some of their challenges, but also to receive support and encouragement around how to deal with that and even become recommended to you know, other people that could help or resources. And those are just two examples I'm aware of. And I'm aware of a lot more. And I know as a you, Richard, but hopefully just for the people listening, it just gives a sense really of just the scale that this is happening in our communities. And it's happening in places you would never expect it. That's why to go back to the role of the community manager, that's why at the moment, I think especially it's really important that we get ahead of this and we support our community managers because these issues are very prevalent. Well, I think that's a fantastic example of also how communities are able to reach people that in traditional mental health services, we've struggled to reach. I might want to add that in our discovery work that helped us to develop good thinking, we found some really interesting places where people were talking about mental health issues in London. The most popular was an entertainment site called Digital Spy, which some people may know of. And perhaps more sort of worryingly, particularly if you're in South London, Crystal Palace Football Club community was a very popular place for people to talk about mental health. So I have yet to read any sort of training manual that would point you in those directions. Given that these issues are cropping up in communities, people feel safe, they're comfortable talking to people like me, able perhaps to open up for the first time about issues concerning their mental health. We've done some work together over the past year with different communities. I wonder if you could share some of the moments that really stood out for you in terms of situations where you wouldn't have expected the community manager to be dealing with something so complex or challenging, or perhaps even just the sheer scale of the needs that community managers are dealing with when it comes to mental health. 
Yeah, sure. So I think we've been quite fortunate that we've been able to tackle this through a range of activities through our work. And those activities have ranged from doing online sessions. So, you know, webinars and those type of support things, which have been incredibly valuable. But I think where I've taken the most value is we've run a several in-person sessions, which we've called roundtables. And we've brought community managers from all walks of life together to talk about some of their experiences. And I think what's been eye-opening for me uh, initially, actually, is that Obviously, community managers, in an online sense, they're used to being quite verbose and quite communicative. But obviously, when you take them offline, sometimes it's actually a new world for them as well. And to come into a room of like-minded people who you know, are people like me, but also you're not quite sure. So for the community manager, a lot of the time, it's quite a lonely role. You, know, you, you quite often will be doing this alone, or you might have a small team, but they may be remote as well. So sometimes your interactions are actually quite limited. And what was great for me running those two sessions was when we started, we kind of made sure that people knew they were in a safe and private space. And this was a learning experience for us, but also for them. And just watching almost like a flower opening across the day and people being much more open around the way they would talk about some of the issues they were dealing with. And I think we both noticed there were so several key themes that always come up for community managers. I think the one that really stands out for me is just the work-life balance. So communities, obviously, being an online piece of software, usually it runs 24-7. I don't know too many communities that really shut their doors. I mean, maybe some of the sort of product support ones might say that. But of course, people usually can access them 24-7. So I think one of the biggest challenges that community managers face is not knowing when their start and stop times are. So, you know, whether you're running a professional or a personal hobbyist community, because interactions happen 24-7, it's very difficult sometimes to not want to go back on in the evening and check everything's okay or to see an alert pop up on your phone, be it an email or maybe an alert from the software itself to tell you that something's happening. You know, many cases in the community managers that we had to our sessions that found themselves on their communities at three in the morning, you know, trying to deal with stuff. And of course, that from a community manager's mental health point of view, that's, that's quite distressing. And alongside that, I think we learned that community managers are quite often asked to wear a huge amount of hats. So again, this is why I think when companies are talking about community, they need to treat the community manager as a very particular skill set and make sure they're supported. So a lot of community managers talking about the fact that they were given additional things to do that they didn't consider to be in their remit. You know, maybe it was go and support the social team or can you just do a day over here? And it, the, the effect on them was to feel that the community, even though they were working incredibly hard and the community was creating an incredible amount of useful content, that sometimes the stakeholders in the community didn't see that as, as important as it should be. So they felt they were stretched thin. And I think just to sort of underpin all of this is that for an industry that I consider to be fairly young, the instances of burnout in community are extremely high. You know, we do have people that get to a point where not only are they leaving their community, but they're actually leaving the industry just because they don't get the support they need and they aren't given the right tools and methodology to deal with the issues that happen in their community. Um, so I think in terms of like big takeaways, those are the things that, that really stood out of the day. And of course, there are myriads of other things that, that float under the surface. But it was just that sort of real realization, I think, that community managers, that there are other people out there sharing these type of problems. And of course, you know, being able to talk about mental health issues from communities that traditionally, you know, we, we had attendees of the day that came from football clubs and we had people that were there from, you know, other consumer areas. We had a university there. We had a real mix of communities. And yet these themes were consistent. These sessions were about 35 people. So it was a pretty good sample group in terms of you know, the coverage of communities we had. But one person would raise an issue and then almost to a person, the rest of the group would say, yes, you know, this sings to me. This is something that's happening in my community as well. So those were the big things that came out of those days for me, I think. And it just gives, a, again, a snapshot of some of the things that our communities are facing. 
Sure, and I guess it was echoing what we were hearing in the news about how teams of moderators around the world working sometimes with big tech were burning out, becoming traumatized. I have to say what I took away, I, I, th I think there were a couple of, of sort of standout moments. One was from a, a charity attached to a community supporting people with an end of life condition. And the community manager from that community was talking about how a GP, sorry, it wasn't a GP, it was a, another doctor specialist, had just given a diagnosis to a young man in his mid-teens that he had now been diagnosed with a condition that had shortened his life and changed any expectations of a future. And that doctor had signposted the young man to the community. And in a way, some of the most challenging areas of health were kind of being offloaded into those spaces. And similarly, hearing from a community that supported carers, the number of carers that are caring for uh, sometimes a partner, husband, wife, and sometimes a, a young person, an older person for that matter, and sort of tolerating high levels of physical violence and abuse that, again, somehow couldn't really be taken to other places. I mean, perhaps they were acknowledged, but certainly the communities were where the extent of those safeguarding issues could finally be fully disclosed. So there were some very powerful messages about the emotional burden on top of the operational and 24-7 demands that community managers face. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and hopefully that's given people a, a sort of a good overview of both the micro and the macro of the way that communities operate. So I think at one level, we're talking about consistent problems that community managers are having facing between communities. And then your examples are fantastic because it gives a real specific insight into exactly what some of those issues are. And I'm sure people listening to this will be maybe not surprised, but it'll be a little eye opening in terms of not realising again that these things are going on and do exist and why these areas are so important. And perhaps from the health service, we kind of want to be working together. So the users of those communities and the people running them, the community managers, are also supported as best they can in terms of knowledge, skills, and just sometimes having a place to offload some of the pressures really themselves. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the area of community management stress at the moment, as we've been talking about, is extremely high. And that's why I think a part of this problem as well is that for community managers, they don't have a specialist knowledge around mental health support or any other type of support. And signposting is hugely important to them. So I think work we can do to help them understand where these resources are, where they can get better support. So they're actually serving their communities in the best possible way. But also they're not taking on that emotional stress or strain or burden of feeling like, have I done enough? Am I, you know, sort of educational guessing at things that are happening? You know, they have a much better understanding of what they need to do and what they need to direct people to to get the best possible support. So that was sort of describing some of our discoveries in 2019, which now feels like a century away from where we are now. What are you hearing, picking up from community managers about the pressures they may be under during the coronavirus pandemic? I mean, I'm guessing with us all being in lockdown, working remotely, or even being educated through technology, whatever it is, everyone's online and probably more in communities than ever. Yeah, it's created in a, a very perverse way, boom time for the online community industry. And I mean that purely in terms of the necessity of online community is now obviously at the forefront because of the coronavirus. So I think there are two main things that sort of spring to mind with that. The first one is that are companies that are trying to transition to what you might call the digital workplace. So if we take that analogy from before of intranets, but in a, you know, a much better, people might be familiar with things like Slack or various tools that are out there to help that type of thing. Um, so in one side, it's the how do we transition 
transition at speed to creating workplaces in this online world to making sure we support the people. I've heard a lot of conversations around people looking at mental health policies they have for the workplace, but obviously realising they fall quite short in terms of supporting people remotely, because I think working from home was sort of traditionally seen almost like a benefit, like you, you kind of earn a day from home. Whereas I think now people are seeing that the benefits and the ability to work from home are actually just business as usual. So policies have to improve and adapt to make sure that people are supported for their mental health. But for community managers that are running public facing communities, uh, I mean, in, in a word, it's just traffic at the moment. So the amount of interest in these spaces are putting, especially charities, under a huge amount of strain. And we heard from one of our colleagues, Serena, at Alzheimer's, 600% rise in registrations for Alzheimer's over a, is it, was it a day. So for people to know also the charity sector in many cases were under incredible strain anyway budgeting issues or you know staffing issues or whatever else it might be so these were places that were already just trying to tread water to keep afloat and support people as best they can and suddenly the door opens wide and you get a huge amount of traffic and people that need walking through the door but it's not just the charities and those type of spaces and we're finding that communities in maybe unexpected places that weren't seeing this happen so communities around perhaps telecom so you know people that now are panicking about whether they can pay their bills or for example their contracts run out it might sound like a very trivial thing but you know in a lot of cases people go from subsidized rate and now you're on the standard tariff and that could be quite significant Significant. So obviously for people feeling the financial squeeze at the moment, those issues are incredibly important. So for call centres and also call centres that were, you know, historically, you know, pick up the phone and, and call me are now losing people to the virus as well. So it's for them, it's like, how do we transition to an online solution? And whether that's just a community or whether that's a community with some intelligent software behind it or whatever else it might be. And it's the rapid transformation is the thing that's putting stress on organisations at the moment. And as I say, communities are also, of course, losing Using staff members to illness. So that's another stress that's coming on them at a time where they could really, you know, do with all the support they could get. And I think all it's doing really is amplifying the need for better tools and support for those communities. You know, to any community manager that's listening at the moment, um, by the way, that's in these situations, you know, best of luck from us as well. Please do come and try and find any support you can from the work that we do or anyone that, you know, we know as well, because the support is out there. I'm sure it feels a bit bleak at the moment. But, you know, just to say also as a message of positivity, I know that everyone's doing an incredible job. And I just know that the support from our side certainly is there. And we're incredibly grateful for the work the community managers are doing at the moment. Sure. I think at a time where we're all kind of trying to protect the NHS, protect businesses, these communities are helping in a vast number of ways. And what's interesting about the example about telecoms is we were hearing from Tanya Goodin yesterday how there's a whole wave of cybercrime at the moment and what are the areas that the criminals are able to exploit, that anxiety, that you could lose your mobile connection, you could lose your internet connection, you know, at this moment in time would just be devastating. And so people are extremely anxious, again, in spaces you may not have anticipated. So all of us benefit from being able to talk to people like me. We see it across professions, communities, etc. Any thoughts of what we could do for community managers in that sense? Yeah, so one of the initiatives we've started in the last sort of six months or so is we're starting to create a safe space for community managers to come together to talk around some of their issues. Now, there are a lot of resources out there in general, sort of community managers to talk about, you know, maybe the art of community building, and a lot of them are, you know, are great. But what we want to specialise in is supporting community managers through specifically some of the mental health and associated issues they might be experiencing, which to my knowledge doesn't really exist at the moment. So this space we've created is completely safe. The idea is that you can kind of come in there, you can talk about some of the issues that you're experiencing, but also the phrase you touch on, Richard, 
I mentioned before, people like me. You know, peer support for community managers is often quite lacking. Community managers, I use the analogy again of the Lone Ranger community manager. They do feel a lot of the time like they're going at this alone. I mean, it's not always obvious to them where to go to get this type of support. So the purpose of our community is to offer a space where people can come together and to talk about some of the issues, to find support, and also to benefit from some of the expertise that's in there. We have, you know, a huge range of great members, a huge wealth of experience in there, all from different backgrounds. No one's competing or, you know, there's no kind of one-upmanship or anything like that. It's just about open and honest conversations. And, you know, for us also, and the work that we do, it's a great resource for us to be able to learn. You know, it's, it's a living world that we can learn from continually. And of course, Richard, as you know, the trends in all our worlds, but especially community, do change. So, you know, we're very familiar with the technopause and the micropause, which might be new to some people. If you want to learn a bit more about that, you know, come over and have a look at the community. And we, certainly there's some conversations going on around that in there. So it's a great way to keep up to date also with some of the advancements in the way that the world's moving for mental health. And of course, you know, as a sort of tertiary of that, we can offer tools, free tools, self-assessments, apps, anything that people might need to support themselves in their community are all available. And we'd love to support through that. So it would be great to sort of see some more people in there. I realise at the moment time is extremely precious. It might not be priority one for you right now, but it might be something that at some point you think you might need a bit of support. And there's some great people and they're having some great conversations. Yeah. And uh, I wouldn't underestimate the value of that micro pause or giving yourself from breathing space, because no matter how great the pressures, if we don't properly sort of self-care, we're not going to be able to do the things we'd like to as well anyway. So it sounds like a really good suggestion. We'd like to end the podcast by giving you the opportunity to tell us a bit more about yourself in a different way. So instead of thinking about spending time with people like me, if you could have gone into lockdown, into isolation, and could have chosen three prominent or famous people to take with you, who would you have chosen? So I'm going to do this slightly differently from maybe some of the other answers you've had. Just in light of the current situation, I'm going to pick three people that are, for very different reasons, are kind of integral to getting me through the week at the moment. And I think if I went into lockdown, I'd need these people <laughs> to survive. So the first one is uh, is Joe Wicks, because I'm doing the Joe Wicks PE workout every morning with my six-year-old. It's uplifting and depressing in equal measures that she's running rings around me at the moment, but it does at least feel that I'm doing some sort of self-care and taking some sort of exercise. The second one would be Ken Bruce, because there's absolutely no way I could live without Popmaster in this or any other time <laughs> world. So I think a little bit of musical light relief is always welcome. And then the third person, I think, is probably someone like Ricky Gervais, just because we all need a bit of comedy in our lives at the moment. I think that would be quite an interesting conversation. I think Ricky shares that sort of maybe slightly dark humour that you and I do, Richard, as well. So th these are three people that are sort of prominent, I guess, in surviving in my world at the moment. And yeah, Joe Wicks is the one that just sort of keeps me, keeps me at least out of my chair and doing something before the day's really started. That's got to be a good thing. I just cannot imagine Joe Wicks and Ricky Gervais surviving together for more than four hours. I mean, had you thought that through? Well, what's interesting is I've noticed that Joe Wicks is starting to do David Brent impressions during his sessions, which kind of, this is probably the thing that got me thinking about these, these two people. <laughs> There's part of me that's kind of interested to see where that might go. Yeah, <laughs> maybe the sort of the devilment in me, I'm not sure, but it would be an interesting experiment. Right, so hopefully when we get to asking you for a luxury, you might wisely take in some sedatives. <laughs> we are going to ask next what sort of piece of media, so book, music, film, recording of a sporting event, could be anything that you might be able to store on your phone, a tablet, or literally carry into isolation with you. What, what would you take? 
Well, music is really the thing for me that is my main interest outside of work and I guess serves many purposes, you know, for relaxation, but also fun. There's one album, which is Portishead's Dummy, which is from the early 90s, about 94, 93, somewhere around there. I have it on vinyl and it's my favourite album. It's the most complete album. It's, I just absolutely love it. And whilst I'm sure casting a record deck uh, in a sort of very hipster fashion wouldn't be particularly applicable to a desert island, but having a very high quality version of that, I can listen to that album over and over again. It always makes the world feel a little bit better, even though I think I'm sure for some people it might <laughs> sound a little maudling. But I love it and that's, that's the thing that I take in. Yeah, but I guess sometimes what really helps us is when people, you know, can speak to the more difficult aspects of life as well as the funny or or lively ones. So that sounds like a nice balance and a luxury if it's not a turntable and amp and speakers. Well, I think I'm I'm a huge fan of whiskey in moderation, of course. But there's a particular brand of whiskey called Lagavulin, which I'm a huge fan of. And I think just as a treat to listen to Portishead after I've done my Joe Wicks workout, <laughs> after I've done Popmaster, watching a bit of comedy from Ricky Gervais and having a glass of Lagavulin sounds pretty good to me. So I think that would be my luxury. Just the one bottle? Did I specify bottle? <laughs> if I could move the distillery in there, I think I'd do that as well. Maybe, <laughs> maybe that would be the island I moved to, the island that Lagavulin is on in Scotland. Yeah, well, I, I guess it could be a container or heavy goods vehicle. It's definitely a necessary journey. I think we can agree on that. I think you probably need to work that through a bit more. You may be right. <laughs> I think with Joe Wicks and Ricky Gervais there with you, you're going to need more than the one bottle. <laughs> anyway, thank you for sharing with us your journey into community and all those years of experience and all those years of supporting people in ways that many of us in health would never have considered. So thank you very much for giving us your time today, Darren. No problem. And thank you very much for having me on the podcast, Richard. I really appreciate it.